You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.25, The Demon Judo, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and like Lena, I too feel uncomfortable in large formal gatherings and leave them as soon as possible. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and still reeling from my first watch through of next week's episode. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 435 patrons and subscribers. After a long plateau, we are seeing an uptick. I would love for us to break 450 in the next couple of months. That would be so exciting. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Litos Shinda, Avery R, Mark M, John S, Christopher B, and Daniel. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And a welcome back to a couple returning patrons. We may not rename you on the podcast, but we do notice when you rejoin, and we very much appreciate it. And don't forget to submit your haiku-style poem for our Season 3 contest. To enter, you just need to write an original Gundam-related poem that fits the haiku format of three lines composed of five, seven, and five syllables, respectively. Then submit it by posting the poem on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, tagging us, Gundam Podcast, and including the hashtag Gundam Haiku. Of course, you can also enter by going to GundamPodcast.com haiku and submitting your poem using the form there. Your haiku should be all ages appropriate, and it should be spoiler-free, which means that as of today, you can write a poem about anything up to and including Lena's Blood, Part 1. You can enter one haiku per week from now until 11.59 p.m. New York Standard Time, March 7th, 2021. Once all entries have been collected, we will award four prize bundles, and every one of them will include Gunpla, generously provided by the USA Gundam Store, a copy of Gundam Double Zeta on Blu-ray, MSB gear like Frabo and the Orphans t-shirts, podcasting Zeta socks, and burger stickers, and more secret goodies. Stay tuned for future announcements. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 27, Lena's Blood Part 1, or Rina no Chi. For research this week, I'm talking technology with a survey of mobile suits and a dive into cameras of the 1980s. But first, let's turn on our space-adapted radio receivers. Good evening. This is TNN, the Titans News Network. I'm Lieutenant Tom Thompson. And I'm Lieutenant Nina Nino's daughter. Tom returns to the program after an extended medical leave following an injury suffered while reporting on location in space Switzerland. I think I speak for all loyal Titans and Titan sympathizers around the Earth sphere when I say welcome back, Lieutenant Thompson. 
Thank you. The doctor said I might never wake up, but nothing can keep a Titan down. Tell me, did you dream when you were in that coma? Yes, Lieutenant Nina's daughter. I had the most terrible dreams. And now the news. Mop-up operations continue in the wake of the Titan's victory at the Gate of Zidane. Last night, a special task force commanded by Commodore Jared Mesa boarded the AUG's surviving flagship Radish and apprehended AUG leaders Henken Beckner and Shri Klein. Quattro Bergina remains on the run, despite calls from spacenoid rights activists like Kasvel Rem Daikun and Shar Aznabal imploring the former AUG ace to turn himself in. Uh, excuse me, Lieutenant Nina's daughter? Excuse me? We are on the air right now. I'm sorry, but this is very important. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a very important update from one of our interns. Well, we just heard from corporate that Captain Nina's daughter has won a daytime Emma for her reporting on the AUG's use of child and prisoner labor on their ships. It's a bit weird that we named our most prestigious journalism award after notorious traitor Emma Sheen, isn't it? Five minutes ago, I would have agreed with you, but now I can't think of a single problem with the award. Thank you, nameless intern. Yes, thank you for interrupting me, live, on air, in the middle of reading the news for that very important announcement. Now, back to the news. Neo-Zeon Supreme Commander Haman Karn and Princess Mineva Zabi are traveling to Earth this week to- Sorry to interrupt, I know we're live, but the Executive Committee wanted me to tell you that you're being awarded the Federation Gold Star for your heroism under fire during the attack on the Kilimanjaro base. It's about time. You know, I suffer- Oh, uh, mm, no. Sorry, I should have specified. Uh, the medal is for Major Nina's daughter. She was safe in the studio the whole time. I was the one under fire. Me! Look, I'm sorry, whoever you are, but I'm just the messenger. Just tell them to put it on top of the pile of awards in my dressing room. Okay, Thompson, just keep it together. Just read the news. Everything will be fine if you read the news. Haman Karn and Princess Mineva Zabi are traveling to Earth this week to offer their surrender to the Federation Assembly. With this gesture, the grip's conflict will... Rear Admiral Nina's daughter, ma'am, I just wanted to let you know that the Executive Committee has decided to change the network name to 3N, the Nina, Nina's Daughter Network. The company's stock price has already tripled. With this gesture, the grip's conflict will finally come to an end. The supremacy of Earth... Hey, just wanted to give everyone a heads up. There is going to be a big herd of giraffes coming through here in just a few minutes. They are all huge fans of Field Marshal Nina's daughter. I guess it's a good thing we installed those extra high ceilings. The supremacy of Earth, enforced by the Iron Rule. Thompson, is that a coffee? Coffee is for executives. Interns like us drink canned energy beverages. Enforced by the Iron Rule of the Titans, we'll last for a thousand- Oh look, it's Lieutenant Toby back from the grave. Do you have a haunting message from the beyond for someone, Lieutenant Toby? It was all just a horrible dream. What are they so happy about? Hey, Mr. Timson! Did you hear the news? 
NZC Radio just announced they're going to start broadcasting audio drama adaptations of their most popular intellectual properties like iGarma and War of the Worlds vs. Some Colonies. Yeah, Captain Nina's daughter herself is going to be the executive producer for the whole project. Why are you excited about that? Do you really think we can compete with slick corporate-produced radio dramas, with celebrity guests, and a million Gila ad campaign? This will destroy us. Oh, lighten up, Tim. This is going to be so great for the medium. And think about all the new fans who are going to realize how great audio dramas are and go looking for more. It's like they always say, a rising tide lifts all boats. We don't have a boat! We are clinging to a barrel and making boat sound effects with our mouths. That wasn't an invitation. I honestly don't get that metaphor. Maybe it's because I've never seen a boat. Or a body of water large enough for one. What about Sludge Lake? Oh, yeah. Wait, but then shouldn't it be a rising tide slowly dissolves all boats? And now the recap for Lena's Blood Part 1. From the window of her room in Dakar's presidential palace, Lena looks out over the harbor full of Neo-Zeon ships, the streets full of Neo-Zeon mobile suits, the fireworks shimmering overhead. Preoccupied, she knocks over a decanter and cuts herself trying to clean up. A maid fusses over her and urges her to start preparing for the evening's party. The air is full of confetti as a parade makes its way down the boulevard. Haman, Mineva, and other Neo-Zeon notables ride in the back of convertibles, smiling and waving to people lining the streets. Rue, Bicha, and Mondo watch from down an alleyway, gathering intel. From just outside the city, El and Judo monitor the ships and mobile suits around the bay. Judo asks El if she'd be willing to leave the Argama after tonight's rescue. He wants Lena taken somewhere safe, but wants to finish what he started with the Double Zeta and AU. Night falls, and the elite of the Earth Federation assemble at the palace. Minerva is there in her child-sized soldier's uniform, but Haman addresses the gathering on her behalf, speaking of the dawn of a new era of harmony and prosperity between Earthnoids and Spacenoids, and her heartfelt thanks for their gracious welcome. As the crowd smiles and applauds, Lena's vision grows dark. Gloved hands seem to glow, disembodied and floating in a field of black nothingness. Seeing her frightened expression, Glemmy assumes its nerves and tells her, don't forget to smile. Federation dignitaries present themselves one by one to Minerva and Haman. Glemmy urges Lena to watch closely, explaining that the adults of the Federation are weak and can only survive by currying favor from the strong. Lena's vision changes again, and drops of sweat dot her forehead. She sees the adults, subservient, smiling, laughing, and knows that it is all a lie. She thinks, is this what being an adult is? The Gundam team is sneaking into the city, underwater or just barely skimming the waves. Pudu, bored and petulant, fires off a missile. The others sputter angrily that this wasn't the plan but Pudu insists that she knew it was time. Lena seems faint, staggering backwards, but recovers and shouts, This is wrong! I don't want to grow up like this! 
The missile Pudu fired lands just outside, rocking the whole palace and distracting everyone from Lena's outburst. The guests are instructed to remain calm, and Haman claims that this is a planned demonstration of Neo Zeon's power. The Karaba were lured here for that very purpose. Glemmy signals the band to keep playing, while Haman takes Minerva to safety. The Gundam team's mobile suits fight their way through the streets of Dakar, with air support from Ryu and Ino in core fighters, and artillery fire from Mondo and Puru in the Mega Rider. Judo lands his core fighter and sets off on foot, sneaking his way into the palace while fire from Ryu distracts the gate guards. Inside, Glemmy talks business with a couple of Federation officials who admire the get-up-and-go of these young spacenoids. Lena senses Judo nearby and, excusing herself with a curtsy, goes looking for her brother. But Lena is not the only one to sense Judo's presence, and as he drops through an open window and down to the landing below, Haman is there to greet him, her pistol at the ready. She talks about the evil Earthnoids, who rushed to rebuild with no concern for the Earth and did even more damage in the process. Judo protests that while that may be true, it doesn't make Haman's actions right, and he will never join her. All he cares about is saving Lena, and Haman, shaking her head at his selfishness, fires her pistol, and the shot grazes his arm. Finally, Lena finds them and throws herself between Judo and Haman. I want to protect you for once, she tells him, shielding him with her body. More explosions rock the building and the power goes out. Judo takes advantage of a moment when Haman is staggered and runs up to try to wrestle the pistol away from her. She manages to shove him away and fires, but in the tumult she misses, and the shot grazes Lena's side, leaving a ragged tear in her pink party dress. Judo holds Lena close, and in an instant, Haman goes from disdainful to frightened. All around her is red and black, full of rough shadows, and pulsing menacingly. Out in the city, still fighting block by block, the Gundam team feel it too. So does Glemmy, who excuses himself to go investigate. The party guests realize that all Neozeon officials have gone, and when a chandelier crashes to the floor, panic finally breaks out. The anger radiating off of Judo looks like blue flame. Hamam backs away and shoots, but is so shaken she misses and Judo continues to stalk towards her. Terror mounting, Haman trips as she backs into the stairs. Stretching up towards the ceiling, Judo's aura looks like a demon with red eyes, and it dives at Haman. She turns tail and runs past her guards and into her room, slamming the door behind her. Crying into her bedspread, Haman shudders to think of Judo's power and the danger he poses. From his core fighter, Ino sees what looks like a massive projection of Judo towering over the palace. A few moments later, it fades away. Although Lina is weak and in pain, she is able to walk with Judo to the palace entrance. Guests crowd the guards, demanding that they be allowed to leave, but Lina has learned a few things these past weeks and brings all her imperiousness to bear. They are all there because they've decided to put the fate of the world in Neo Zeon's hands and should be willing to follow Neo Zeon to the end. Anyone who leaves will mark themselves out as a rebel. She commands them to return to the Great Hall, and with a few quiet grumbles, the crowd dissipates. 
The soldiers thank her, and she explains to them that she's been ordered by Glemmy to return to the Saladan. She speaks with such authority that they believe her, and she and Judo walk away. Glemmy, realizing that Lena isn't in her room, goes looking for her, and once he's spoken to the guards, realizes that she can't have gone far. He launches in the Bawu. Unable to walk any further, Lena collapses, and Judo carries her toward his core fighter. But they run into a checkpoint, and it looks as though they'll be captured until the Audumla arrives. The air around it is dense with mobile suits on base jabbers, and the guards rush off to more important tasks. There's no way to properly care for Lena while flying the core fighter. Judo does his best, but his core fighter takes a hit, and they crash land on the water. The fight still raging all around them. It's a persistent question for me watching Gundam whether certain characters are truly new types. Or if they are particularly attuned to a specific person or place or situation, or if this is just about sort of differences in strength among new types, which I bring up because when Lena is staring out her window at the harbor full of Neozeon ships and the city full of Neozeon mobile suits and the sky full of Neozeon fireworks, she seems somewhat more off and disoriented than we might expect even from her situation. And then she breaks this decanter or whatever and goes to pick it up and she cuts herself. And that felt like a a portent or a premonition. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm not sure what that has to do with new types. You don't think that some of what some new types do is having premonitions? Well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, I thought we were going to talk about Lena, but now we're talking about Puru because I think in this episode, Puru does demonstrate that kind of uh, supernatural forethought that some new types in the past have shown. Because when they're flying in and Puru and Mondo are in the Mega Rider and Puru decides now is the moment to fire, even though they're out of range and it's way before schedule, but she insists that now is the moment to fire and then she does. And that premature explosion then sets up Lena's whole escape. It also distracts from Lena's outburst. Yes, which otherwise could have been a major issue for Lena. It does imply a sort of link between them or that Pudu could feel something of what was happening with Lena that she then responded to as, oh, this is the time. There is definitely some kind of link between those two little sisters. But Pudu does something like this three times in this episode. That was the second time. The third time, and the one that is the most obviously the result of her new type powers, allowing her to predict something that would have otherwise been impossible to predict, is when they fire again at something they can't even see, Mm -hmm. and they hit the, uh, I guess it's a Dodai with a Neozeon mobile suit on the back that was chasing Judo. But once you see that, and you can say, oh yeah, Puru is definitely using her new type abilities, her extrasensory perceptions to know what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You then have to look backwards and see that probably that's what she was doing when she, quote, impulsively fired before time. And then you have to carry that back one more to when Judo is leaving on the mission and Puru insists on going with him because she says he's going to need her. And L holds her back. Well, and presumably Judo didn't want to take her or right. he would have done. 
but probably Puru knew that Judah was going to need her. And how differently might things have gone if Puru had been with him? Or might Puru have been recaptured? Might Puru have helped Haman because she was jealous of Lena? Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I believe Puru when she says, he needs me, that, you know, she believes that. But I'm not convinced that it would have been the right move. We have a whole nother episode, though, so <laughs> yeah, this is only part one. Lena's blood part two awaits us. Presumably, it will contain many revelations. To come back to the idea of Lena maybe or maybe not being a new type, she senses her brother multiple times and long before anyone else does. And then there's her whole sequence of hallucinations, <laughs> visual reactions to her awakening to the um, hypocrisy of adults. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that Lena is a new type after that scene. She's portrayed in that scene with the sort of visual language that we have come to understand as representing the new type experience. And the audio cues, the new type sounds that often get played right before or after these moments. Before we talk about her in that scene, I want to go back to the scene where she breaks the vase. And actually, that's not the piece that I wanted to focus on. But when she's looking at herself in the mirror, Glemmy tells her not to worry, it'll be okay, just remember to smile. And she then, she pulls a face in the mirror. This struck me because it's sort of ambiguous what she's doing. Is she, like, trying to force a smile and then failing? Because she does, after she does this face, her expression sort of falls and she looks tired. She looks worn down. Or is this a gesture of resistance, a, a kind of grimace at this gross old dude trying to control her? Third option, and this is the one that I think it is, she probably controls her face very carefully around Glemmy. And if you've ever spent hours and hours with your face very controlled, whether it's in a smile or trying not to smile or whatever, it hurts. Your face <laughs> feels tense. And every once in a while, you have to move everything around to like <laughs> work the kinks out of your face muscles. And so I figured that Lena was sort of pulling some rubber faces to work out some of that tension and relax her face a little bit between having to be that way around Glemmy all the time and, in a minute, having to be that way at the whole party. The resistance angle is a good one, but I think she'd be much more likely to pull the kind of faces that we stereotypically see pulled in anime by kids who are taunting authority. Sticking her tongue out, pulling her eyelid down. There are some classic faces to pull and postures, and she doesn't use them. Sure, although this feels close. Like it's in the same family of expressions, even if it's not quite there. But speaking of that party... Glemmy points all of these Federation officials out to Lena because he's trying to make a point about strength, martial strength and violence, that all of these Federation officials who ran the Earth are now in a position of having to bow and scrape to Minerva and to Haman and to Neozeon because they're weak, because they do not have the power to back up their own authority. But because of Lena's sensitivities, because we've established we're pretty sure she's a new type, she knows it's all a lie. <laughs> <laughs> that even the obsequiousness is just a, um, it's a facade, it's for now, it's because it's convenient. 
the Federation had put all of its eggs in the Titans' basket, and now the Titans are gone. I absolutely believe they will turn on Neo Zeon if they ever feel capable of doing so. For the Federation, this is not about, oh, we've changed our minds and we're going to give up our Earth-polluting ways, and you're right. This is, ah, well, you're here with all this weaponry and we don't want to be blown to smithereens, so sure. As adults, we hear Haman's speech, and we hear all the menacing undertones in it automatically. Our, our brain automatically translates phrases like, Harmony and prosperity, heartfelt thanks, gracious welcome. We're so used to people putting this polite patina on things that are in fact threats <laughs> and insults that we translate it automatically. But Lena is at the cusp of adulthood in a lot of ways and is horrified that this kind of duplicity, that this amount of show and lying is just what adults do all the time. <laughs> it gives me uh, Peter Pan vibes a little bit. When she says, I don't want to grow up like this. Ah, yeah, it's a very poignant moment for her because notwithstanding that Lena is like 11 years old, this is her debut into high society per Glemmy. And the debut is the transition into adulthood for aristocratic young women. It is when a new adult is revealed to the world and enters the adult version of society. So for Lena, this is literally her coming of age, or at least it was supposed to be. And so it's deeply meaningful that this is when she looks around and she sees all of these adults and she sees what it means to be an adult in the Gundam world, in Tomino's conception, uh, and she hates it. She rejects it. She finds it to be horrifying in the truest sense. And yet... She has already absorbed it. She's already become it. Well, has she? How easily does she lie and make that little speech to the crowd, to the guards, so that she and Judo can get away? Admittedly, her motives are different. She's being brave in a lot of ways, whereas a lot of the Federation officials are being cowardly. She's trying to save her brother, not just her own skin. She's not letting anyone down who she has an obligation to. And the Federation officials probably are. <laughs> but she is absolutely using the, the language of power and privilege and politeness in order to get what she wants. And she knows exactly how to do it. It's not hard for her. She has been carefully and meticulously trained to do it. But she acknowledges afterwards the uh, immorality of what she's done. She has that line about heaven not wanting her because of all the lies she's told. Right, that she's clearly bad now. And this is because she's negotiating a kind of shadowy nether realm between the binary morality of childhood where lying is always bad and the fluid amorality of adulthood where lying is just a thing you do every day. I wouldn't say adulthood is amoral, but I get what you're saying. Well, in this case, I don't mean amoral as in bad, but amoral as in, like, not particularly governed by rigid rules of morality. And I don't mean that necessarily to be a statement about the world, although maybe it is, but rather a statement about how uh, adult morality works in Tomino projects in Gundam Double Zeta. But Lena's success also points to the ways in which a child's simplification of these things can have downsides. You know, she 
would not have been able to save her brother if she hadn't been willing to lie there. But she wasn't just willing to lie. She was also willing to throw herself between Haman and Judo. Oh, yeah. And take that bullet for him. It's very clear that uh, Judo's stated desire from the beginning of the episode for someone to take Lena someplace safe for the rest of the war is never going to come to fruition. <laughs> no. Lena doesn't want to be protected. Like Elle starts to say before she gets interrupted, Lena wants to be with Judo. She wants to be beside him. He's basically all she has in the world. Her willingness to put herself between him and Haman tells me that she's looking for a more equal relationship, not one in which she is protected. Judah's desire to send Lena away somewhere safe with Elle and then to send money for their upkeep is, like Lena lying to those guards, a little bit of adulthood for Judo. It's a different kind of adulthood than what we see from the Earth Federation officials, but it's what his parents did, right? His parents went off to work somewhere so that they could send money back to support their kids in Shangri-La. And for Judo, it's an act of selflessness. He loves his sister. He wants to be with his sister, but he also wants her to be safe. You mentioned that Glemmy focuses on strength when he's talking about the Earth Federation officials who are at that party. And by the way, the Earth Federation officials at that party are wearing a uh, an assortment of different outfits, all of which seem like they came right out of the 19th century, including, I believe, some monocles. <laughs> but where Glemmy focuses on strength and weakness, those old Earthnoids focus instead on energy. They keep talking about the youth and the energy of Neozeon. Glemmy's youth and energy, Lena's youth and energy. That felt very pointed to me uh, for a couple of reasons. The first is all of these Federation guys imagining the get up and go of this young man who is talking about uh, going to war with and taking all of the resources of these. Uh, we don't totally know the status of Jupiter at this point, but it sounds like they're relatively independent. Yeah, this suggests that Jupiter has become its own independent thing. And he's like, oh, it'd be easy to just like take all their resources. And they're like, oh, look at the energy of this young man. How admirable. <laughs> Similarly, you know, Lena's use of very feminine, very polite language and her little curtsy when she leaves. Both of these felt like a way of pointing out that adults prize the wrong things in young people. They prize obedience without knowing what why it exists. They prize energy without looking at what it's being put towards. They prize this appearance of order and obedience and social acceptability without looking at what's underneath it. Are you sure it's not just that as adults we feel tired all the time? <laughs> I mean that too. But even a step further, when they compliment Lena, Glemmy accepts it like a compliment to himself because he's been training her, right? Mm -hmm. Which first made me think of My Fair Lady <laughs> because there's whole scenes about how when the main uh, character in that show pulls off pretending to be an aristocrat at a very important party, the men who helped prepare her for that take all the credit for themselves. Kind of seems very similar, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh, but then within the Gundam universe, this idea that adults make children extensions of themselves, and so then the children, because they're a reflection of you, what they do brings either honor or shame on you. Compliments to them are compliments to you. 
problems with them are problems for you. And I mean, that you this say is, within the Gundam universe, but that just sounds like how parents treat children all the time. I mean, yes, but I think the Gundam universe is making the point that that's gross. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. And this then is Glemmy's justification for going after Judo and Lena once they've made good their escape or made sort of good their temporary escape. Because Glemmy says, I'm not going to let Lena get away after everything I've done to train her. He thinks giving her piano lessons gives him a claim over her. And obviously, Glemmy is a, a kidnapper and not her parent. But I do think Gundam is using his relationship with her to talk about how some people treat parenthood. And that, like, Lena is a person. <laughs> She's a human person with her own thoughts, feelings, and motivations. And no amount of having cared for her makes her property or gives you claim to her. Also, you were just going to present her as a debutante. You were making her an adult. As an adult, she should have the right to leave. Well, but he would almost certainly still have considered her an extension of himself even after she was in a quote-unquote adult and still considered her to have, like, obligations to him. I'm just saying he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> that Gundam is, is presenting this attitude that we can look at it and it's very easy to recognize it as grotesque coming from a kidnapper, but it does encourage us to look at the relationships between parents and children and apply some of the same standards. Like, is the child being treated like a person or are they being treated like they're owned? Or are they being treated uh, like a doll? Because the other thing that should make us think about is Haman and Mineva. So I have a question about Mineva in this episode. Did they just not want to pay her voice actress or was she busy or? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a body double. Maybe it's meant to be a body double. I'm just saying we've seen Mineva give little speeches before and it's always very impressive. It's clearly practiced extensively, uh, but there's no reason she couldn't have given the speech that Haman gave. Well, except to demonstrate how totally in charge Haman is. Right, but this is a shift from previous scenes of the two of them, where Mineva is allowed at least to be the figurehead leader for Neo Zeon. Here, she's almost like an accessory. Oh, absolutely. And I highlight that for that reason. I mentioned the possibility of a body double only to point out that this is the second time recently that the idea of body doubles has been raised. Haman mentions it a few episodes ago when she's talking to Glemmy, and he says, there's only one of you. And she says, how do you know that? But then in this episode, we get one of the Earth Federation officials also saying, is that really Mineva? I thought she was a body double. Three times would be a pattern. Twice at this point is still a coincidence, but let's keep an eye on it. Before we talk some more about Haman, we get a few cameos from previous episodes or seasons of Gundam. Uh, Yazan makes an appearance in the party crowd, and I think Jared is a waiter. <laughs> Jared is dead, Nina. That's just another generically handsome blonde dude, like Buran Blutark or Slager Law or Shar Aznable. Hey, what is Quattro Bajina doing? Did he take a job as a waiter for Neo Zeon? Haman was trying to recruit him at the end of Zeta. She didn't say for what. Was the man next to Haman in the parade, the guy with the white hair and beard and the white uniform, was that really Quattro in disguise? <laughs> Are we supposed to know who he is? I don't think so. Okay. I think he's just meant to be a kind of platonic ideal of old sclerotic military officer. 
That's fair. I'm deeply curious about the police tulip patch. Yeah. On the shoulder of one of the motorcycle cops. That might just be a matter of English is cool. Maybe. And a couple quick notes on Dakar. I don't know if this will get any further research, but the palace that they're having the party in is the Presidential Palace or Palace of the Republic in Dakar. Uh, It was built in 1907 and was originally for the uh, colonial governor to live in. And then once they got independence, it's for the president. The sort of goldish domed building with two towers on the parade route is the Cathédrale Notre-Dame de Victoire de Dakar. I'm sure my French pronunciation is terrible. I'm sorry. What would that be in English? The Cathedral of Our Lady of Victory of Dakar. And it was built in, or it was consecrated in 1936. So the the road that they're on is a real road. It's the Rue de la République, which leads straight to the presidential palace. It ends right at the front of the palace grounds and goes directly past this cathedral. I do want to quickly point out uh, some interesting costume changes for our Neo Zeon folks. Glemmy's outfit for the party looks almost like a religious costume. He looks like a priest of some kind. He's wearing a white robe with a sort of very detailed tabard. I believe he's not the only one wearing this outfit. He's but not. Not all of the Zeon officers are. He stands next to someone wearing the same outfit during Haman's speech, I believe. And then there's a bunch of the blue uniform with the like draped red fabric across the chest. And he wears his other uniform with the sort of dragony looking design on the front during the parade. And then he's in a standard Zeon military uniform for the fight at the end, which presumably he was wearing underneath his tabard and he just sort of threw it off. Maybe that would be hot, though. Full dress uniform and then put a robe and a like over robe over it. Well, otherwise he changes outfits way too quickly and that would be a plot hole. Maybe he has an attendant who helps him change uniforms. I put my pants on the same way as everybody else. My trouser maidens (laughs) hoist me into them. (laughs) To prevent wrinklage. It's a very small thing, but uh, before the party, Glemmy is sort of just behind Lena and he's looking at her and she's looking at the mirror. And so the the shoulders of his tabard, it appears to be quite stiff. So the shoulders are sort of pointy and stick out past his shoulders. And then Lena's dress has a similar kind of silhouette because of part of the sleeve mm. that sticks straight out from her shoulder, extending her shoulder line. Interesting. Yeah. Well, in the 80s were a time of big shoulders on things, and it was thought to look strong and aggressive. Speaking of strong and aggressive fashion choices, check out that suit on Haman. I love it so much. I'm not sure I would do the one long sleeve, one no sleeve, (laughs) but it's really cool. Not only is she wearing a jacket with only one long sleeve, but on that same arm with the long sleeve, she's also wearing a mesh glove. One mesh glove. Continuing the trend that I have observed before, of asymmetrical arm garments. Yep. Well, I mean, judo has a little wrap or bandage on his left wrist. I called it a van brace last time. Sweatband? I don't know. Something, it's, yeah, something like that. Here's the thing, though. All of the Shangri-La youths uh, wear theirs on the left arm. Haman wears hers on the right. Could this be a reference to their political affiliations? Haman, as an authoritarian tyrant, is 
on the right of the political spectrum, whereas our anarcho-Gundamist commune of the Shangri-La kids are leftists. You know, you said that as if it's supposed to be a silly joke, but I can absolutely imagine them doing that on purpose. <laughs> and maybe they did. It would be a silly thing to do on purpose, so it's still appropriate to describe it in a silly kind of way, but it could be real. I will also say, as someone who knows more about fabrics <laughs> than Tom does, the glove looks like it's fishnet or lace, not mesh. Is a fishnet not merely a very large gauge mesh? Yes, but that's a significant difference. <laughs> I think I, so anyway. I guess I did establish rigorous and sometimes excessive precision as hallmarks of the MSB podcasting style. So I've really hoisted myself by my own petard here. In keeping with the pattern of convenient lies that nobody can really object to is Haman's bold-faced claim that this attack is all according to Keikaku. That they in fact lured Karaba here on the night of the party so they could demonstrate Neozeon's strength. See, I think she really pulls that off. I think everyone believes that. Or at oh, least believes no. it enough for the circumstances. And if they had won, it would have been a masterful stroke of political manipulation. I don't know. I assume all of them look on that with a great skepticism. But what are they going to say? They've already picked a side. <laughs> but they don't bolt until they look around and realize that Glemmy and Haman have both left the party. Because until all the Neozeon like, top officers have left the party, clearly they believe that the fight is not that serious and doesn't necessitate their direct involvement. Once they're gone, they either have left because they think the palace is too dangerous or because they're needed in the combat itself, uh, which neither of which are uh, good signs for the fetties they <laughs> left behind. They've already picked a side. If they don't think Neozeon can protect them, they can leave, but then they'll be rebels. Then they are picking the other side. There is no neutral action for them to take here. Mm-hmm. While this is mostly Lena's episode, the other character that it is very revealing about is Haman. I was particularly struck by the speech that she makes to Judo before she shoots him, because it really reveals her to be of that older generation, like we've noticed with Bright, who still feel very strong personal attachment to the Earth. When she talks about living in space and seeing the way that the Earth is treated, she sounds like an exile. She sounds like someone who resents living in space. I spent all those years staring into the cold black of space. Right. While they ruined the Earth again more. Which is not that compelling an argument for Judo's generation because they don't feel that attachment. They don't feel like exiles in space. That's just where they've always lived. That's where they're from. And it's Earth that feels alien to them, Earth that feels hostile. And yes, it's beautiful, but they don't feel any particular emotional attachment to it that necessitates this aggressive defense of the Earth and the environment. That just feels so weird coming from the quote-unquote leader of the space noids. For her to be so obsessed with Earth and so resentful of space. <laughs> Yet, we have every reason to believe that this is true, that this is really Haman's deeply held feeling. Because as she says, Judo seems to bring out the authentic Haman. She can speak her mind freely when he's around. This whole monologue scene reveals so much about Haman's inner world, so much more so than on the surface. And to talk about that, I'm going to start with asking a simple question. Why doesn't she shoot him? 
She could have shot him at any point during that conversation before Lena showed up. She could have shot him after Lena showed up. She has no reason to not shoot Lena. She does shoot him a little bit, but I, I take your point. Uh, she talks way too much. And you could chalk this up to classic villain monologuing. And I do think there's some of that. However, there's also clearly some kinship that she feels. She likes that he makes her feel at ease. She likes that she can speak honestly like this around him. And he might be the only person who she feels she has that with. She also, and this is perhaps most important, does not see him as a threat until after their encounter. Mm. I think when she sees Judo and Lena embracing and when Lena throws herself between the two of them, you can see that this affects Haman quite strongly. Not that she cares a fig for Lena, but that intimacy, that relationship of companionship. I think Haman, on one level, is desperately lonely. She really, really wants a companion of some kind. And I think going all the way back to Zeta Gundam, when she and Camille have that moment and they can see into each other's minds and they can see into each other's pasts, one of the things that passes between them is their mutual loneliness. And we see this brief flash of Haman with Quattro alluding to some kind of relationship between the two of them in the past. And so I think Haman is very lonely. She's completely isolated in her current situation. I think a huge part of her resentment towards Shar is that he was the one person she could have like a relatively egalitarian relationship with and as such be a little more relaxed and a little more honest and vulnerable. And he abandoned her. Maybe that was something she wanted in the past. But now, as much as she wants a companion, she is absolutely terrified at the prospect of having an equal because that's a threat to her. She feels extremely vulnerable. And then that contributes to her loneliness because she can never open up to anybody. When Judo's power comes out and it becomes evident that he is incredibly powerful and he exerts this terrible pressure on her, she panics, she flees. It's frightening. She is so afraid. And this is incredibly voice acted. There's like a tremor in her voice. It's really good. Before that, she thought she could dominate him. And that's an acceptable relationship for her. And if he were powerful but servile, then she could command him. If he were willing to go with the flow, the way the Earth Federation officials are, then that would also be acceptable. But he's not. He's too powerful and he's too independent. They could only ever be equals, and she can't accept that. She also calls him selfish, which I want to pick apart a little bit, again, because of a thing that I read recently uh, that was talking about how selfish is often a thing other people call you when you're not willing to do what they want. <laughs> <laughs> sure, you can look at Judo's behavior on some level and say, well, he's really only motivated by his sister, which is a you know, very personal motivation. And you could call that selfish, that it's about him and the people close to him. And he's not looking at planets and sides and big governmental organizations. But Haman's not really mad that he's selfish. She's mad that she can't use him. If he had selfish motivations, but she could use them, that would be fine. <laughs> he would be like everybody else at the party. How much of her calling him selfish actually comes down to her just not understanding his motivations? When Judo's aura gets really big, he gets picked up by the entirety of the Gundam team. It's only Pudu who knows that it's him, but everyone on the Gundam team feels it. 
And Eno sees that giant projection of judo towering over the palace. When that giant judo first appears, it comes after Haman sees the like demon that comes out of him. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder if had Eno been in that hallway on that staircase with judo and Haman and Lena, would he have also seen the demon Mm. or would he have seen judo, Mm -hmm. but just like bigger, big judo, bigger judo where Haman sees the demon. Yeah, one of the other things I loved about how this scene was animated is Haman backing away from him and she trips against the stairs behind her and falls and Judo keeps stalking forward. It's so good. <laughs> it's, it's really good. The part we haven't talked about before Lena gets shot is the struggle for the gun. Oh, it's so good. This is the section where they have like a strobe light effect going yeah. as Judo and Haman are fighting over the gun. I read that as the power has gone out, but because of flashes of light from explosions and searchlights outside, the darkness gets punctuated by like bright flashes of light. I did not even think that far into it. <laughs> I just head empty, no thoughts, cool scene. And this is both beautiful and visually striking. And from an animation perspective, probably pretty cost effective <laughs> because they only need those keyframes. They don't need yeah, all the in-betweens animation. Uh, the storyboards and the episode director for this episode were both done by Sugishima Kunihisa. He's a regular director on Sunrise Productions. We've definitely talked about him before because he did a bunch of episodes for Zeta, uh, and he has done a bunch of episodes for Double Zeta so far. He oversaw some of Zeta's better episodes, including Forever 4 which was the second of the Kilimanjaro episodes, the one where Four dies, and was a really well-put-together episode. His work in Double Zeta hasn't really stood out so far, but this one is very good. And it's got a lot of those sort of weird, eye-catching, brain-stimulating visual decisions, like having all the party guests reduced to just their glowing, clapping hands. It's the sort of thing that makes you go, huh? But in a good way. I had one quibble with the Judo Lena Haman scene, and that's that after Lena gets shot, Judo says, Shikari Shiro, and they translate it as get a grip, which sounds more critical than I think it's meant to in the scene. Later, he says the exact same thing, Shikari Shiro, but it's translated as hang in there, which felt much more appropriate. I could get that they maybe didn't want to be super repetitive with it, but I think there are probably other ways to translate that other than get a grip. (laughs) Get a grip sounds like something you'd say after smacking somebody. Pull yourself together, as opposed to like judo to his sister, who looks as if she's only been grazed, but we're not sure. She's bleeding an awful lot for a graze. I don't think that she is bleeding that. She left some drops behind, but there's no like pooling. I don't know. It looked like quite a few large drops on the ground. Yeah, I, neither of us know enough about gunshot wounds to have this conversation. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I really appreciate that the guard at the gates looks at Lena's blood, clearly realizes that it's Lena's blood. Apparently he knows he's in the episode Lena's Blood Part 1 because he looks down at it and he says, "That's." and then trails off instead of looking directly at the camera and saying, that's Lena's blood, part one. And now the research. This week, Tom covers mobile suits and camera technology from the 1980s. 
This week, I want to indulge my inner tech otaku and talk a little bit about the hardware that has shown up in the last couple of episodes. I was originally planning to say some of it made up and some of it very real, but my research eventually led me to conclude that everything I'm going to talk about today is at least mostly made up, despite the impression of reality. What do I mean by that? Let's get into it. Back in the face of Rommel, and incidentally, the word for face there is kaal, which can also mean honor or status. So if you embarrass someone or make them look like a fool, like what those pesky teens did to Rommel, you could use the expression kaal o tsubusu, literally, to crush a face. But back in the just-asking-to-be-crushed face of Rommel, the Xeon Scout snaps some pictures of the Zeta Gundam on the Mega Rider using a camera with a huge, presumably telephoto lens. The camera is drawn in detail, and it has a distinctive black and chrome look. But more than that, it's got a real-world brand name on it, Pentax. All of this taken together led me to suspect that this might be a depiction of a real camera available around the time of the episode's creation. And because I am cursed with curiosity, that meant I had to find it, if I could. Pentax, or Pentakusu, is a Japanese camera brand, originally a lens manufacturer for spectacles and later for camera lenses under the name Asahi Kogaku, or Asahi Optical. They worked on military contracts during the Pacific War, binoculars, rangefinders, trench periscopes, aerial reconnaissance cameras, and they were disbanded by the Allied occupation government, but were allowed to reform a few years later in 1948. Being disbanded was probably just as well for them, because their factory had been badly damaged by Allied bombing. Incidentally, Asahi Optical made the smaller handheld binoculars, those huge, high-quality ship-mounted ones that gave the Imperial Japanese Navy a huge advantage in low-light environments and night fighting, were instead made by Nippon Kogaku, today's Nikon. In 1952, Asahi Optical released their first camera, the Asahi Flex. Then in 1957, they introduced the Asahi Pentax, although the name itself had been purchased from East German camera maker Carl Zeiss. The penta in Pentax derives from the five-sided pentaprism, a reflecting prism that was incorporated into the camera's viewfinder in order to accurately reproduce the image as seen through the lens. Older viewfinders, including those on the Asahi Flex, produced an image that was reversed. So if the camera in the show is based on a real-world camera, it has to be one that was manufactured between 1957, when Asahi Optical acquired the Pentax brand name, and August 1986, when this episode aired. That's still a lot of cameras. Initially, when I looked at this camera, I noticed that the telephoto lens had auto written on it, and I thought this might mean that it was an auto-focusing camera. That would be apropos, because autofocus technology was in its infancy in the early 1980s, and in fact, Pentax was the first company to mass-produce an autofocusing camera, the Pentax ME-F. But the ME-F was made before the technology was really ready. And likewise, it turns out that my assumption that this was an autofocusing camera was premature. Any listeners who happen to be experts in old camera tech are probably shaking their heads at me right now, because the auto on the lens refers not to automatic focus, but to the lens's ability to automatically control the aperture and let in just the right amount of light. 
While autofocused technology was rare in 1986, automatic aperture control was not. The search, therefore, must continue. So let's break down the visible features of the camera besides the brand name and the lens. It's mostly black, with white or perhaps chrome features on the roof of the camera. It has a pyramid-shaped structure on the roof. That's the pentaprism from which Pentax took its name. The lens has SMC written on it, which stands for Super Multi-Coating, and it describes a chemical coating that would be applied to the surface of the lens to improve its performance. Pentax patented SMC back in the early 70s, and pretty much all of their lenses use that coating. So those three details fit most of the Pentax camera range and don't help us very much. But moving on to look at the other details, it becomes clear that this is in fact a camera of the future. On the right side of the camera, as viewed by the audience, there are two connection ports. These are PC, or Prontor Compor terminals, and they're used to sync the camera with an external flash system. Many Pentax cameras have them, but none of them have them in the same position as the one on the show. Next, on top of the camera, you can see that there's some kind of opening in the front face of the pentaprism, right above the brand name. This is called an illuminating window. It allows light into the viewfinder, illuminating liquid crystal displays that showed information like shutter speed or aperture value. This is a key clue, because in 1986, this design innovation was only a few years old. The only Pentax cameras to include an illuminating window at the time were the 1983 Super A, which was called the Super Program in the United States, and its cheaper sibling, the 1984 Program A, or Program Plus. I know these names are confusing, they're not that important, you don't have to worry about them. The Super A was a standout camera. It won the prestigious Camera of the Year Award from the Expert Imaging and Sound Association in that year. Besides the illuminating window in the pentaprism, it was available in that black and chrome color scheme that appears in the show. But you know what neither the Super A or the Program A had? They didn't have two PC terminals on the front of the camera. They just had one, and it was underneath the camera. So that means this camera cannot be a Super A or a Program A. And since those were the only ones available at the time with illuminating windows, that means this simply is not a real camera. So, if I couldn't identify a real camera, why take you through this whole research process? Of course, part of the reason is that I spent countless hours over several weeks researching Pentax cameras and old camera technology in general, and I wasn't going to let that go to waste just because the ultimate answer to the question of was this a real camera turned out to be no. But also, in a way, I think this is actually more interesting. The artists have clearly taken inspiration from real cameras, real camera companies, and real technological innovations of that moment. And yet, the animator has not just reproduced an existing camera. They had to have been looking at multiple different cameras to create this particular device. In extrapolating the future of photography, they imagined that in the never entirely too distant future of the Universal Century, people would still be using Pentax brand film cameras, and that they'd look pretty much like they did in 1986. And you know what? They might have been right about that. Most of the information in this research piece was collected from internet forums, where enthusiasts gather to share their love for these now decades-old cameras. 
Who's to say that this Axis soldier isn't just a huge fan of vintage Pentax cameras? But this is a Gundam podcast, and we did promise you mobile suits, so let's jump ahead to Lena's Blood Part 1 and talk about the bevy of designs that are on display. Besides the now-familiar Axis mobile suits, the Zissa and the Gallus J, the opening shot of Dakar also shows us another one-year war-era Zaku II, as well as a Hyzak, of all things. The Hyzak is obviously a descendant of the Zaku, and so this latter mobile suit in its dark green color scheme looks so natural next to its forebearer that you could almost forget that the Hyzak is not an Axis mobile suit. It's a Federation suit. It's a Titans suit. And that dark green color scheme might look like a Xeon color scheme, but it's a Titans color scheme. So either this suit belongs to a Titans defector, or more likely, after crushing the Titans at grips to, Axis must have incorporated captured Titans hardware into their fleet. The Hyzak is a natural fit for them, and they didn't even need to change the colors. I highlight this for three reasons. First, because it's just a little background detail that really broadens our understanding of the Universal Century and what else is going on off camera. Second, because it means you can imagine the other Titans mobile suits falling into Xeon hands. Kiara Soon in a custom Byrlant, Mashima's Mark II with roses where the Vulcans should go, the possibilities are endless. And then third, I mention it because it gives me the opportunity to mention another podcast, the Gundam Book Club, which is covering Gundam side stories that were never animated, like the serialized novel Gundam Sentinel and the manga Revival of Xeon. I won't say too much about either because of the spoilers, but Revival of Xeon was made by mangaka Kondo Kazuhisa just after Double Zeta finished its run. Kondo had previously worked on several Gundam manga throughout the 1980s, including the manga adaptation of Zeta Gundam that ran contemporaneously with the show. In Revival of Xeon, Kondo did imagine that Neo Zeon would repurpose Titan's tech, just as the Federation had once repurposed all those Xeon mobile suits. And just as real-world armies so often do. Now, although Kondo did not work on Gundam Double Zeta, this little background detail reveals that someone on the staff had the exact same idea. So thanks to Gordon at the Gundam Book Club for pointing me to Kondo's comments about Neo Zeon incorporating Titan's tech, and as always, there will be links in the show notes. Moving on, in brown and tan with a red rim around the face is the main Zeon mobile suit in this episode, the Dowage, or Dowaji in the Japanese. This one is essentially a svelte dom in desert camo colors. If you care about the stats, the Dowage is taller but lighter, with better generator output and sturdier armor. It's still got that scattering beam shotgun kind of weapon in its chest, that heat saber, a slightly larger bazooka, etc. etc. We've met the Dowage previously, kind of, because Rommel was tooling around the desert in an upgraded Dowage Custom before he ran afoul of the Gundam team. The ones in this episode are the standard mass-produced model. Along with the Dowage, we see a handful of tantalizing glimpses of another mobile suit, one with a darker blue and darker blue color scheme, and a distinct bright yellow collar. These are a bit of a puzzle. They seem like they must be MS-06D Desert Zakus, the same mobile suits used by the Rommel Corps. But this is not a color scheme that we've seen before. 
and later in the episode we will see some desert zakus in the standard color scheme. So who are these pilots? What are they doing here? Was this even intentional, or merely an error by a colorist? Blink and you'll miss them, but when the ticker tape parade rolls up to the presidential palace early in the episode, the entrance is being guarded by two gray mobile suits in the Zaku Hizak family, but they're too bulky to be either, and they have different shoulder armor. These are the new Zaku 3s, making their very first appearance. You could be forgiven for missing them, and they won't reappear for the rest of the episode. But it would be difficult to miss the final mobile suit in this episode. Last time we saw Karaba in action, they, like the Ayug, relied on the workhorse Nemo. You may even remember that part of the point of the Jaburo invasion back at the beginning of Zeta was to deliver Nemos to Karaba so that they could copy the design and manufacture their own. Well, now they have yet another new mobile suit, the Gym 3. Elegant yet powerful, the Gym 3 is objectively the best iteration of the Gym design. Or at least, it's my personal favorite, which is the same thing as being objectively the best. It is poetic that the Zaku 3 and Jim 3 should each make their debuts in this episode. And you know I love the Jim 3, but its presence here in significant numbers really has to make us wonder about Karaba's supply lines. Where are they getting all these new mobile suits? How did they get a full battalion's worth of the Federation's newest mass-produced mobile suit? As with the Ayug, we are forced once again to ask, where is the line between the Federation military, the arms manufacturers like Anaheim who supply it, and these semi-autonomous, semi-rebellious armies? And who knows what awaits us next week? At this rate, presumably Karaba will be adopting the Gym 4 by the end of the month, and Neo Zeon has a horde of Rick Gabsleys ready to go at any moment. Next time on episode 3.26, My Turn to be Happy, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 28, and Splash Fight. Teens and their joy rides. Introducing new villains. Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité. Eliminating the competition. Jumping while things explode behind you the same eyes. Tenacious double Z. Glemmy grapples with the idea of privilege. Genuine surprise. And Teenage Junkyard New Type Space Noids. Teenage Junkyard New Type Space Noids. Teenage Junkyard New Type Space Noids. Teens in a mobile suit. Psychic powers. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, 
Additional information about the Lenape people and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Masai's ghost boyfriend Tog was actually Shar Aznable under a new alias. He's not dead, he just ran away. Again. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion is from Sergeant Soultaker and the MSB Patrons Discord. Thanks, Sergeant Soultaker. And thank you for listening. What if the pigeons are at war with the rats? The squirrels are like a neutral third faction. I think that might just be literally true. I don't think that has <laughs> to be part of your New York fantasy series. You want to record some podcasts? Uh, yeah. Can you do the first sent- sentence of that again? And I'm Lieutenant Nina Nina's daughter. Oh, sorry. The second sentence. <laughs> My bad. The second sentence that is most of the thing. Daikun or Daikun? Apparently it's Daikun. Then it's anglicized wrong, but okay. I I agree, (laughs) but I've been dragged enough about this by, by people I respect enough. have giraffe noises you can use, yeah. which is great. <laughs> and the sky full of Neozeon Hanabi. No. <laughs> Fireworks? Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I remembered in Japanese before I remembered in English, yes. That hasn't happened like in years, I know. In a decade, like since you got back from Japan. I know, but anyway. Maybe the A in amorality stands for adult. Ha ha ha. A line keeps popping into my head. A journalist and a writer about feminism who I follow and really enjoy, Mona Iltawati, uh, has a phrase that she says often as a woman when people are talking about violence against women in society. And she says, I don't want to be protected, I want to be free. The air around it is dense with mobile suits on, you said dodais? I think these are probably base jabbers, but the the Xeon ones are dodais. Okay. Base jabbers? Base jabbers. Okay. Hooray! We did it!